Hello, I'm Archbishop John Wilson, and I'm the Bishop for Catechesis at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. This year, 2019, is the 40th anniversary of the promulgation of Pope St John Paul II's Apostolic Exhortation, Catechesi Tridende, one of the great church documents on catechesis in the modern world. We wish to mark this occasion by inviting the faithful, particularly catechists, many of whom have never encountered the beauty and richness of John Paul II's thoughts on catechesis to delve into Catechesi Tridende, either individually or ideally in groups. This is why we have produced this study and formation guide in the spirit of Catechesi Tridende itself, which boldly states, everybody needs to be catechised. John Paul II repeatedly invites all the faithful, even clergy, religious and catechists, to continued renewal of their ministry and deepening of their faith through prayer, study and contemplation, to build up their personal apostolate of catechesis and to allow themselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. We have produced four modules for this study guide, each based on roughly ten pages of text. Each module includes an outline of the text, the text itself, summary questions, journaling prompts, discussion questions, and perhaps most importantly, prayers to use before study and Lexio Divina passages to help you to enter more deeply into the scriptural inspiration behind this apostolic exhortation. There are detailed instructions for using this guide, and all of these resources are free to download from our website. The text for each module, along with a brief meditation on a central theme of that passage, is also available to listen to in these podcasts. It is my hope that the words of Pope St. John Paul II will encourage and inspire you in your own catechetical work and strengthen your discipleship to Jesus Christ. The closer we draw to him, the more we will be able to lead and inspire those we teach to know him and to follow him. Thank you, from the bottom of my heart, for what you do to teach the Catholic faith. Your faithful witness is an inspiration to many. I offer you my blessing and assure you of my prayers for your very important ministry. Module 3. Everybody needs to be catechised. These simple words are the heading of this section of Catechesi Tridende. They are not hyperbole. There is not small print listing exclusions and exceptions. Everybody needs to be catechised. Because many of us identify catechesis solely with the parish-based sacramental preparation classes, this can be a puzzling statement. Partly this is because we think of catechesis as a collection of facts we need to know in order to receive the sacraments. As we have already seen, however, catechesis is something much more profound than simply transmitting information. It reveals deep and essential truths about the world and our place in it. It cultivates our hearts and minds so that the gospel can be rooted deeply in us and bear fruit. It gives meaning and understanding to religious practice. And through all of this, it helps us to deepen our relationship with Christ. In short, catechesis is a vital element in the continuing conversion of all Christians. And because all are called to conversion, everybody needs to be catechised. Pope St John Paul II looks not only at the internal dispositions of faith of the human person, but also at their cultural existence, their life in the world. He does not begin optimistically. The contemporary world is beset by anxiety, fear, 
uncertainty, indifference, escapism, addiction, violence and nihilism. He writes about the essential formation of children by their parents, but acknowledges too that children arrive at parish catechesis completely unformed in the faith, and that many adults are quasi-catechumens, as unformed and immature in the fundamentals of the Catholic faith as any child. There is ample material in this passage to fuel the pessimism and frustration that many catechists feel. How can catechesis have any effect on people living under such conditions? If there is any man able to offer hope and consolation, it is St John Paul II, about whom you will find more information in the printed material for this guide. Despite growing up in a devout family and surrounded by a devout Catholic culture in Poland in the early 20th century, changes in the politics and culture of his youth made his own formation anything but straightforward. His university was closed by the Nazis during the occupation before he could take his degree, and he ended up doing hard manual labour in a lime quarry during the day and training for the priesthood in the evenings in an underground seminary run by the Archbishop of Krakow. He was ordained and continued to study, but despite being assigned to teach and minister to university students, under communism, theology departments were closed and there were limits on public religious practice. It was, for example, illegal for priests to travel with groups of students and so he had to be incognito when he accompanied them on pilgrimages. Despite the hostility of the culture to the faith, John Paul II never faltered in his desire to catechise and to form those entrusted to him in the faith. He continued to write and publish in theology, but also to publish poetry and plays, and to take the opportunities for formation offered by cultural activities like theatre and sport. He never gave up on the culture, nor despaired on making the gospel speak within it. This history adds even more weight to his assertion that the power of the gospel transforms and regenerates. When that power enters into a culture, it is no surprise that it rectifies many of its elements. There would be no catechesis if it were the gospel that had to change when it came into contact with culture. Despite the tremendous adversity catechists face today, the example of perseverance and faithfulness offered by Pope St John Paul II is there to show a way forward, as is his perennial attitude of hope. Some of his most famous words are a fitting exhortation to catechists. He said, I plead with you, never ever give up on hope, never doubt, never tire, never ever become discouraged. Do not be afraid. Let us pray together for courage, hope and zeal in our catechetical mission. Saint John Paul II, pray for us. Catechesi Tridende, an apostolic exhortation of Pope John Paul II on catechesis in our time. Part 5. Everybody needs to be catechised. The importance of children and the young. The theme designated by my predecessor, Paul VI, for the Fourth General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops was Catechesis in Our Time, with special reference to the catechesis of children and young people. 
the increase in the number of young people is without doubt a fact charged with hope and at the same time with anxiety for a large part of the contemporary world. In certain countries, especially those of the third world, more than half of the population is under 25 or 30 years of age. This means millions and millions of children and young people preparing for their adult future. And there is more than just the factor of numbers. Recent events, as well as the daily news, tell us that although this countless multitude of young people is here and there dominated by uncertainty and fear, seduced by the escapism of indifference or drugs, or tempted by nihilism and violence, nevertheless, it constitutes in its major part the great force that amid many hazards is set on building the civilization of the future. In our pastoral care, we must ask ourselves, how are we to reveal Jesus Christ, God made man, to this multitude of children and young people? Reveal him not just in the fascination of a first fleeting encounter, but through an acquaintance, growing deeper and clearer daily with him, his message, the plan of God that he has revealed the call he addresses to each person, and the kingdom that he wishes to establish in this world with the little flock of those who believe in him, a kingdom that will be complete only in eternity. How are we to enable them to know the meaning, the import, the fundamental requirements, the law of love, the promises and the hopes of this kingdom? There are many observations that could be made about the special characteristics that catechesis assumes at the different stages of life. Infants. One moment that is often decisive is the one at which the very young child receives the first elements of catechesis from its parents and the family surroundings. These elements will perhaps be no more than a simple revelation of a good and provident father in heaven to whom the child learns to turn its heart. The very short prayers that the child learns to lisp will be the start of a loving dialogue with this hidden God, whose word it will then begin to hear. I cannot insist too strongly on this early initiation by Christian parents, in which the child's faculties are integrated into a living relationship with God. It is a work of prime importance. It demands great love and profound respect for the child, who has a right to a simple and true presentation of the Christian faith. Children. For the child there comes soon at school and in church, in institutions connected with the parish or with the spiritual care of the Catholic or state school, not only an introduction into a wider social circle, but also the moment for a catechesis aimed at inserting him or her organically into the life of the church, a moment that includes an immediate preparation for the celebration of the sacraments. This catechesis is didactic in character, but it is directed towards the giving of witness in the faith. It is an initial catechesis, but not a fragmentary one, since it will have to reveal, although in an elementary way, all the principal mysteries of faith and their effects on the child's moral and religious life. It is a catechesis that gives meaning to the sacraments, but at the same time it receives from the experience of the sacraments a living dimension that keeps it from remaining merely doctrinal and it communicates to the child the joy of being a witness to Christ in ordinary life. Adolescence Next comes puberty and adolescence with all the greatness and dangers which that age brings. 
It is the time of discovering oneself and one's inner world, the time of generous plans, the time when the feeling of love awakens with the biological impulses of sexuality, the time of the desire to be together, the time of a particularly intense joy connected with the exhilarating discovery of life. But often it is also the age of deeper questioning, of anguished or even frustrating searching, of a certain mistrust of others and dangerous introspection, and the age sometimes of the first experiences of setbacks and of disappointments. Catechesis cannot ignore these changeable aspects of this delicate period of life. A catechesis capable of leading the adolescent to re-examine his or her life and to engage in dialogue. A catechesis that does not ignore the adolescent's great questions, self-giving, belief, love and the means of expressing it constituted by sexuality. Such a catechesis can be decisive. The revelation of Jesus Christ as a friend, guide and model, capable of being admired but also imitated. The revelation of this message which provides an answer to the fundamental questions. The revelation of the loving plan of Christ the Saviour as the incarnation of the only authentic love and as the possibility of uniting the human race. All this can provide the basis for genuine education in faith. Above all, the mysteries of the passion and death of Jesus, through which, according to St. Paul, he merited his glorious resurrection, can speak eloquently to the adolescent's conscience and heart, and cast light on his first sufferings and on the suffering of the world that he is discovering. Youth. With youth comes the moment of the first great decisions. Although the young may enjoy the support of the members of their family and their friends, they have to rely on themselves and their own conscience, and must ever more frequently and decisively assume responsibility for their destiny. Good and evil, grace and sin, life and death, will more and more confront one another within them, not just as moral categories, but chiefly as fundamental options which they must accept or reject lucidly, conscious of their own responsibility. It is obvious that a catechesis which denounces selfishness in the name of generosity, and which without any illusory oversimplification presents the Christian meaning of work, of the common good, of justice and charity, a catechesis on international peace and on the advancement of human dignity, on development and on liberation, fittingly completes in the minds of the young the good catechesis on strictly religious realities which is never to be neglected. Catechesis then takes on considerable importance since it is the time when the gospel can be presented, understood and accepted as capable of giving meaning to life and thus of inspiring attitudes that would have no other explanation such as self-sacrifice, detachment, forbearance, justice, commitment, reconciliation, a sense of the absolute and the unseen. All these are traits that distinguish a young person from his or her companions as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Catechesis thus prepares for the important Christian commitments of adult life. For example, it is certain that many vocations to the priesthood and religious life have their origin during a well-imparted catechesis in infancy and adolescence. 
from infancy until the threshold of maturity. Catechesis is like a permanent school of the faith and follows the major stages of life, like a beacon lighting the path of the child, the adolescent and the young person. The adaptation of catechesis for young people. It is reassuring to note that during the fourth General Assembly of the Synod and the following years, the Church has widely shared in concern about how to impart catechesis to children and young people. God grant that the attention thus aroused will long endure in the Church's consciousness. In this way, the Synod has been valuable for the whole Church, by seeking to trace with the greatest possible precision the complex characteristics of present-day youth. By showing that these young persons speak a language into which the message of Jesus must be translated with patience and wisdom and without betrayal. By demonstrating that, in spite of appearances, these young people have within them, even though often in a confused way, not just a readiness or openness, but rather a real desire to know Jesus who is called Christ. And by indicating that if the work of catechesis is to be carried out rigorously and seriously, it is today more difficult and tiring than ever because of the obstacles and difficulties of all kinds that it meets. But it is also more consoling because of the depth of the response it receives from children and young people. This is a treasure which the Church can and should count on in the years ahead. Persons with disabilities Children and young people who have physical or intellectual disabilities come first to mind. They have a right, like others of their age, to know the mystery of faith. The greater difficulties that they encounter give greater merit to their efforts and to those of their teachers. It is pleasant to see that Catholic organisations, especially dedicated to young people with disabilities, contributed to the Synod a renewed desire to deal better with this important problem. They deserve to be given warm encouragement in this endeavour. Young people without religious support. My thoughts turn next to the ever-increasing number of children and young people born and brought up in a non-Christian or at least non-practising home, but who wish to know the Christian faith they must be ensured a catechesis attuned to them so that they will be able to grow in faith and live by it more and more in spite of the lack of support or even the opposition they meet in their surroundings. Adults To continue the series of receivers of catechesis I cannot fail to emphasise now one of the most constant concerns of the Synod Fathers a concern imposed with vigour and urgency by present experiences throughout the world. I am referring to the central problem of the catechesis of adults. This is the principal form of catechesis because it is addressed to persons who have the greatest responsibilities and the capacity to live the Christian message in its fully developed form. The Christian community cannot carry out a permanent catechesis without the direct and skilled participation of adults, whether as receivers or as promoters of catechetical activity. The world, in which the young are called to live and to give witness to the faith which catechesis seeks to deepen and strengthen, is governed by adults. The faith of these adults, too, should continually be enlightened, stimulated and renewed, so that it may pervade the temporal realities in their charge. 
Thus, for catechesis to be effective, it must be permanent. And it would be quite useless if it stopped short at the threshold of maturity, since catechesis, admittedly under another form, proves no less necessary for adults. Quasi-catechumens Among the adults who need catechesis, our pastoral missionary concern is directed to those who were born and reared in areas not yet Christianised, and who have never been able to study deeply the Christian teaching that the circumstances of life have at a certain moment caused them to come across. It is also directed to those who in childhood received a catechesis suited to their age, but who later drifted away from all religious practice, and as adults find themselves with religious knowledge of a rather childish kind. It is likewise directed to those who feel the effects of a catechesis received early in life, but badly imparted, or badly assimilated. It is directed to those who, although they were born in a Christian country, or in sociologically Christian surroundings, have never been educated in their faith, and, as adults, are really catechumens. Diversified and complementary forms of catechesis. Catechesis is therefore for adults of every age, including the elderly persons who deserve particular attention in view of their experience and their problems, no less than for children, adolescents and the young. We should also mention migrants, those who are bypassed by modern developments, those who live in areas of large cities which are often without churches, buildings and suitable organisation and other such groups. It is desirable that initiatives meant to give all these groups a Christian formation, with appropriate means, audio-visual aids, booklets, discussions, lectures, should increase in number, enabling many adults to fill the gap left by an insufficient or deficient catechesis, to complete harmoniously at a higher level their childhood catechesis, or even to prepare themselves enough in this field to be able to help others in a more serious way. It is important also that the catechesis of children and young people, permanent catechesis, and the catechesis of adults should not be separate watertight compartments. It is even more important that there should be no break between them. On the contrary, their perfect complementarity must be fostered. Adults have much to give to young people and children in the field of catechesis but they can also receive much from them for their growth of their own Christian lives. It must be restated that nobody in the Church of Jesus Christ should feel excused from receiving catechesis. This is true even of young seminarians and young religious, and of all those called to the task of being pastors and catechists. They will fulfil this task all the better if they are humble pupils of the Church, the great giver, as well as the great receiver of catechesis. Part 6. Some ways and means of catechesis. Communications media. From the oral teaching by the apostles and the letters circulating among the churches down to the most modern means, catechesis has not ceased to look for the most suitable ways and means for its mission. With the active participation of the communities and at the urging of pastors, this effort must continue. I think immediately of the great possibilities offered by the means of social communication and the means of group communication, television, radio, the press, records, tape recordings, the whole series of audiovisual means. 
the achievements in these spheres are such as to encourage the greatest hope. Experience shows, for example, the effect had by instruction given on radio or television when it comes to a high aesthetic level and rigorous fidelity to the magisterium. The Church now has many opportunities for considering these questions. Utilisation of various places, occasions and gatherings. I am also thinking of various occasions of special value, which are exactly suitable for catechesis. For example, diocesan, regional or national pilgrimages, which gain from being centred on some judiciously chosen theme based on the life of Christ, of the Blessed Virgin or of the saints. Then there are the traditional missions, often too hastily dropped but irreplaceable for the periodic and vigorous renewal of Christian life. They should be revived and brought up to date. Again, there are Bible study groups, which ought to go beyond exegesis and lead their members to live by the Word of God. Yet other instances are the meetings of ecclesial basic communities, insofar as they correspond to the criteria laid down in the Apostolic Exhortation Evangelii Nunciandi. I may also mention the youth groups, that under varying names and forms, but always with the purpose of making Jesus Christ known and of living by the Gospel, are in some areas multiplying and flourishing in a sort of springtime that is very comforting for the Church. These include Catholic action groups, charitable groups, prayer groups and Christian meditation groups. These groups are a source of great hope for the Church of tomorrow. But in the name of Jesus, I exhort the young people who belong to them their leaders and their priests who devote the best part of their ministry to them. No matter what it costs, do not allow these groups, which are exceptional occasions for meeting others and which are blessed with such riches of friendship and solidarity among the young, of joy and enthusiasm, of reflection on events and facts, do not allow them to lack serious study of Christian doctrine. If they do, they will be in danger a danger that has unfortunately proved only too real, of disappointing their members and also the Church. The catechetical endeavour that is possible in these various surroundings, and in many others besides, will have all the greater chance of being accepted and bearing fruit if it respects their individual nature. By becoming part of them in the right way, it will achieve the diversity and complementarity of approach that will enable it to develop all the riches of its concept, with its three dimensions of word, memorial and witness, doctrine, celebration and commitment in living, which the Synod message to the people of God emphasised. The homily. This remark is even more valid for the catechesis given in the setting of the liturgy, especially at the Eucharistic Assembly. Respecting the specific nature and proper cadence of this setting, the homily takes up again the journey of faith put forward by catechesis and brings it to its natural fulfilment. At the same time, it encourages the Lord's disciples to begin anew each day their spiritual journey in truth, adoration and thanksgiving. Accordingly, one can say that catechetical teaching too finds its source and its fulfilment in the Eucharist, within the whole circle of the liturgical year. Preaching canted upon the Bible texts, must then in its own way make it possible to familiarise the faithful with the whole of the mysteries of the faith and with the norms of Christian living. Much attention must be given to the homily. 
It should be neither too long nor too short. It should always be carefully prepared, rich in substance, and adapted to the hearers, and reserved to ordained ministers. The homily should have its place not only in every Sunday and feast day Eucharist, but also in the celebration of baptisms, penitential liturgies, marriages and funerals. This is one of the benefits of the liturgical renewal. Catechetical Literature All the Church's activities have a catechetical dimension. Catechetical works, far from losing their essential importance, acquire fresh significance. One of the major features of the renewal of catechetics today is the rewriting and multiplication of catechetical books taking place in many parts of the Church. Numerous very successful works have been produced and are a real treasure in the service of catechetical instruction. But it must be humbly and honestly recognised that this rich flowering has brought with it articles and publications which are ambiguous and harmful to young people and to the life of the Church. In certain places, the desire to find the best forms of expression, or to keep up with fashions in pedagogical methods, has often enough resulted in certain catechetical works which bewilder the young and even adults. Either by deliberately or unconsciously omitting elements essential to the Church's faith, or by attributing excessive importance to certain themes at the expense of others, or, chiefly, by a rather horizontalist overall view out of keeping with the teaching of the Church's magisterium. Therefore, it is not enough to multiply catechetical works. In order that these works may correspond with their aim, several conditions are essential. 1. They must be linked with the real life of the generation to which they are addressed, showing close acquaintance with its anxieties and questionings, struggles and hopes. 2. They must try to speak a language comprehensible to the generation in question. 3. They must make a point of giving the whole message of Christ and his Church, without neglecting or distorting anything, and in expanding it they will follow a line and structure that highlights what is essential. 4. They must really aim to give to those who use them a better knowledge of the mysteries of Christ, aimed at true conversion and a life more in conformity with God's will. Catechisms. All those who take on the heavy task of preparing these catechetical tools, especially catechism texts, can only do so with the approval of the pastors who have the authority to give it, and taking their inspiration as closely as possible from the general catechetical directory, which remains the standard of reference. In this regard, I must warmly encourage Episcopal conferences of the whole world to undertake patiently but resolutely the considerable work to be accomplished in agreement with the Holy See in order to prepare genuine catechisms which will be faithful to the essential content of revelation and up-to-date in method and which will be capable of educating the Christian generations of the future to a sturdy faith. This brief mention of ways and means of modern catechetics does not exhaust the wealth of suggestions worked out by the Synod Fathers. It is comforting to think that at the present time every country is seeing valuable collaboration for a more organic and more secure renewal of these aspects of catechetics. There can be no doubt that the Church will find the experts and the right means for responding, with God's grace, to the complex requirements of communicating with people of today. Part 7. How to impart catechesis.
diversity of methods. The age and the intellectual development of Christians, their degree of ecclesial and spiritual maturity, and many other personal circumstances, demand that catechesis should adopt widely differing methods for the attainment of its specific aim, education in the faith. On a more general level, this variety is also demanded by the social and cultural surrounding in which the Church carries out her catechetical work. The variety in the methods used is a sign of life and a resource. That is how it was considered by the Fathers of the Fourth General Assembly of the Synod, although they also drew attention to the conditions necessary for that variety to be useful and not harmful to the unity of the teaching of the one faith. At the service of revelation and conversion. The first question of a general kind that presents itself here concerns the danger and the temptation to mix catechetical teaching unduly with overt or masked ideological views, especially political and social ones, or with personal political options. When such views get the better of the central message to be transmitted, to the point of obscuring it and putting it in second place, or even using it to further their own ends, catechesis then becomes radically distorted. The Synod rightly insisted on the need for catechesis to remain above one-sided divergent trends, to avoid dichotomies, even in the field of theological interpretation of such questions. It is on the basis of revelation that catechesis will try to set its course, revelation as transmitted by the universal magisterium of the Church, in its solemn or ordinary form. This revelation tells of a creating and redeeming God, whose Son has come among us in our flesh, and enters not only into each individual's personal history, but into human history itself, becoming its centre. Accordingly, this revelation tells of the radical chance of man and the universe, of all that makes up the web of human life under the influence of the good news of Jesus Christ. If conceived in this way, catechesis goes beyond every form of formalistic moralism, although it will include true Christian moral teaching. Chiefly, it goes beyond any kind of temporal, social or political messianism. It seeks to arrive at man's innermost being. The message embodied in cultures. Now a second question. As I said recently to the members of the Biblical Commission, the term acculturation or inculturation may be a neologism, but it expresses very well one factor of the great mystery of the Incarnation. We can say of catechesis, as well as of evangelization in general, that it is called to bring the power of the Gospel into the very heart of culture and cultures. For this purpose, catechesis will seek to know these cultures and their essential components. It will learn their most significant expressions. It will respect their particular values and riches. In this manner, it will be able to offer these cultures the knowledge of the hidden mystery and help them to bring forth from their own living tradition original expressions of Christian life, celebration and thought. Two things must, however, be kept in mind. On the one hand, the Gospel message cannot be purely and simply isolated from the culture in which it was first inserted, the biblical world, or more concretely, the cultural milieu in which Jesus of Nazareth lived, nor without serious loss from the cultures in which it has already been expressed down the centuries. 
It does not spring spontaneously from any cultural soil. It has always been transmitted by means of an apostolic dialogue, which inevitably becomes part of a certain dialogue of cultures. On the other hand, the power of the gospel everywhere transforms and regenerates. When that power enters into a culture, it is no surprise that it rectifies many of its elements. There would be no catechesis if it were the gospel that had to change when it came into contact with the cultures. To forget this would simply amount to what St Paul very forcibly calls emptying the cross of Christ of its power. It is a different matter to take with wise discernment certain elements, religious or otherwise, that form part of the cultural heritage of a human group and use them to help its members to understand better the whole of the Christian mystery. Genuine catechists know that catechesis takes flesh in the various cultures and milieu. One has only to think of the peoples with their great differences of modern youth, of the great variety of circumstances in which people find themselves today. But they refuse to accept an impoverishment of catechesis through a renunciation or obscuring of its message, by adaptations, even in language, that would endanger the precious deposit of the faith, or by concessions in matters of faith or morals. They are convinced that true catechesis eventually enriches these cultures by helping them to go beyond the defective or even inhuman features in them and by communicating to their legitimate values the fullness of Christ. The contribution of popular devotion. Another question of method concerns the utilisation in catechetical instruction of valid elements in popular piety. I have in mind devotions practised by the faithful in certain regions with moving fervour and purity of intention, even if the faith underlying them needs to be purified or rectified in many aspects. I have in mind certain easily understood prayers that many simple people are fond of repeating. I have in mind certain acts of piety practised with a sincere desire to do penance or to please the Lord. Underlying most of these prayers and practices, besides elements that should be discarded, there are other elements which, if they were properly used, could serve very well to help people advance towards knowledge of the mystery of Christ and of his message. The love and mercy of God, the incarnation of Christ, his redeeming cross and resurrection, the activity of the Spirit in each Christian and in the Church, the mystery of the hereafter, the evangelical virtues to be practised, the presence of the Christian in the world, etc. And why should we appeal to non-Christian or even anti-Christian elements, refusing to build on elements which, even if they need to be revised or improved, have something Christian at their root? Memorization. The final methodological question, the importance of which should not least be referred to, one that was debated several times in the Synod, is that of memorization. In the beginnings of Christian catechesis, which coincided with a civilization that was mainly oral, recourse was had very freely to memorization. Catechesis has since then known a long tradition of learning the principal truths by memorizing. We are all aware that this method can present certain disadvantages, not the least of which is that it lends itself to insufficient or at times almost non-existent assimilation reducing all knowledge to formulas that are repeated without being properly understood.
these disadvantages and the different characteristics of our own civilization have in some places led to the almost complete suppression, according to some, alas, the definitive suppression, of memorization in catechesis. And yet, certain very authoritative voices made themselves heard on the occasion of the Fourth General Assembly of the Synod, calling for the restoration of a judicious balance between reflection and spontaneity, between dialogue and silence, between written work and memory work. Moreover, certain cultures set great value on memorization. At a time when in non-religious teaching in certain countries, more and more complaints are being made about the unfortunate consequences of disregarding the human faculty of memory, should we not attempt to put this faculty back into use in an intelligent and even an original way in catechesis? All the more since the celebration or memorial of the great events of the history of salvation requires a precise knowledge of them. A certain memorization of the words of Jesus, of important Bible passages, of the Ten Commandments, of the formulas of profession of the faith, of the liturgical texts, of the essential prayers, of key doctrinal ideas, etc., far from being opposed to the dignity of young Christians, or constituting an obstacle to personal dialogue with the Lord, is a real need, as the Synod Fathers forcefully recalled. We must also be realists. The blossoms, if we may call them that, of faith and piety, do not grow in the desert places of a memoryless catechesis. What is essential is that the texts that are memorised must at the same time be taken in and gradually understood in depth, in order to become a source of Christian life on the personal level and the community level. The plurality of methods in contemporary catechesis can be a sign of vitality and ingenuity. In any case, the method chosen must ultimately be referred to a law that is fundamental for the whole of the Church's life the law of fidelity to God and of fidelity to man in a single loving attitude.